Our scripture reading this morning comes from James chapter 4. It's found on page 1013 on the Bibles that are in the rack in front of you. As Dick mentioned, most of the uh, pastors were gathered in Houston this past week, so all around the PCA today is Assistant Pastor Sunday. Uh, Let's give attention now to the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4, and we'll read through chapter 5, verse 6. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days, and behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask that by the power of your Spirit... We might see ourselves clearly, that we might be honest about our condition, so that we might see Jesus and what he has done for us and how he has treasured us and changes us for all of eternity. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as I was preparing this week, these are a few words that I came across that describe this passage. They may even be words that you thought of as I read this passage. But some of these words were seething, fierce, smoldering, hammering, rough, blistering, scathing, thundering, and condemning. And I'd like to take this opportunity to publicly thank James for assigning me this text while he is away. Well, this is a good text, but it is a hard text. And I want to set the tone before we dive into the warning from James. And I want to set the tone by, paying, by calling attention to two phrases in this passage, come now and weep and howl. James uses this first phrase, come now, in verse 13 and also in verse 1. What does that mean, come now? Well, that phrase is the same phrase that mothers and sons and brothers and friends would bring their loved ones to Jesus to heal them. This was also the phrase, if you recall from the Old Testament, when the Shunammite woman comes to Elisha, whose child is dying, and she pleads with urgency, Elisha, come now. 
James is pleading with us. There's an urgency here. In addition to this, in chapter 5, verse 1, James says, Come now and weep and howl. Those are words that were used to describe when someone was crying out in lament of excruciating pain over their sin or also even from the death of a loved one. So James is likening the topic in this passage and giving it the importance of life and death. So this is an urgent word and this is an important word that we should hear this morning. It's like when you talk to your children and you know you need to get their attention when something is really important. It's like where we live, we have a really busy street out in the front of our house. And so it's dangerous if they go out and play in the street or chase a ball. So what do we do? I get down on my knee, I look them in the eye, and I say, pay close attention. Do not go play in the street. Why? Because it's a matter of life and death. And why do I do that? It's because I love them. So that's the tone of this passage, that James loves the people who are reading this. The Holy Spirit and God and Jesus love us. And we as pastors love all of you. And so that's why we preach on these topics like wealth and money. Not because we necessarily choose them, but because Jesus talks about money all the time. So we're going to talk about wealth and the danger of that in our lives as well. So I want to walk you through this passage in four parts. I want to look first at the warning. And then I want to look at the reasons. Then I want to look at the good news And then finally, we want to look at the change, how this will impact our lives on a daily basis. First, let's look at the warning. Well, James gives us two warnings in these two sections of Scripture. The first warning that James gives us is this. On the surface, it could look like that James is condemning wise planning in the first section of 13 through 17, but he's not. James is not condemning what we would call wise planning, but he is condemning what verse 16 says is arrogant boasting. Okay? You need to understand that. It's not why, it's not a sin to plan ahead. Jesus calls attention to this in the Gospel of Luke when he tells about the man who went out to build a tower but did not develop a budget ahead of time and he ran out of funds and Jesus calls him foolish. And he says the general who did not count the cost of going to war to make sure he had the resources, he calls him foolish as well. So James is not condemning wise or strategic planning here, but what he is condemning is arrogant boasting in planning, okay? Now, what's the second thing that James warns about and condemns in this passage? Understand this. James is not condemning wealth. What he is condemning is how you get it and what you do with it. In this passage, he's condemning dishonest gain and self-indulgence. We need to remember that riches are a blessing from the Lord, Solomon says this, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth and he adds no trouble to it. And there are plenty of wealthy people in the Bible. 
Notable saints like Abraham, Job, David, Philemon, Joseph of Arimathea, and Lydia. And one of the passages that we misquote all the time from Timothy, it does not say that money is the root of all evil. What does it say? It says, the love of money is the root of all evil. So what James is condemning in this passage, first and foremost, is the exploitation of the poor. He condemns those who hire day laborers who work hard all day and they store up all this food in their storehouses. It's a great harvest. And then at the end of the day, they refuse to pay the laborers. Now you have to understand about uh, the people of this time who are working. If they didn't get paid for working, their families didn't eat that night. And they didn't eat for breakfast in the morning. And they were so vulnerable they were not able to fight against those types of injustices in court. They were vulnerable. And James is condemning dishonest gain. And the other type of practice that James is condemning is luxury and self-indulgence. And that simply means to spend more on yourself than what is right. And that's another sermon for another time. We don't have time for that today. The warning. What does James warn against in this passage? Two things. How did you get it? And how are you spending it? And James says, if you earned it dishonestly and you spend it selfishly, you are in grave danger. Now, the next question you should be asking is, well, why are these things, why is planning and why is wealth so dangerous? I'm glad you asked. Let me give you a few reasons. Second section, the reasons. Now, James actually tells us metaphorically that uh, boasting is evil and your wealth will metaphorically eat your flesh like fire. Now, if you don't think that is harsh enough, go get Eugene Peterson's The Message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible, and listen to how he translates it. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your stomach destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you piled up is judgment. Now, why does James give us such stern warnings? He does so because he loves us, because we will have a tendency to do two separate things with planning and with wealth. The first reason is this. Planning will give you the illusion of control. And it says you really have no control because this entire world is like a mist. It's what Ecclesiastes calls vanity of vanities or what the band Kansas would call dust in the wind. It's breath-like. It's vapor. It's fleeting. You think that you have control, but you really don't. And what James is condemning in this passage is actually boasting. When Jeremiah in chapter 9 in the Old Testament, he says, do not boast in riches, do not boast in wealth, do not boast in wise planning, but boast in the Lord. Do you know what a boast is? A boast is whatever you place your confidence in to get through the day. It's whatever you do when you wake up in the morning and think about, if I just had this, then everything would be okay today. Or it's whatever you think about that you need for your week in order to have confidence to go about your life. It's whatever you need to make sure that your year is going to be great and your life is going to turn out blissful. 
And James says one of the deceptive um, things that we will use will actually be wise planning. Or not wise planning, but planning. Because we are seeking by this planning to actually control our life. And James says you really have no control over anything no matter how much you plan no matter how wise you are. Now, I'm not saying wise planning is not good and that that does give you some measure of control, but let me explain that a little bit. Do you remember Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5? He was the commander of the Syrian army. He was incredibly wealthy. He was powerful. He was a wise planner, but you know what? He had a problem. He had leprosy, and he couldn't do anything about leprosy. And remember, he went to Elisha to see if Elisha could heal him of this disease. And what did he take? He took cartloads of gold and silver and clothing. You see, he thought that he could control that by using his wealth and his authority, he might be able to be healed. And what did the prophet Elisha tell him to do? He's like, you don't need any of that. None of that is any good. Go bathe in the river and be healed. You see, the illusion is this, is that we think that we can control the world by planning, by strategizing, by just thinking hard enough. And do you know why that is destructive? Because one, it's a myth that you can control life, everything in life, by wise planning. You see, one of two things will happen. Either you'll be overconfident or you'll be full of worry and anxiety. Do you know what worry and anxiety is? It is, I have planned out my life, and I know the way it ought to go, and it's not going that way, so I'm going to worry about it because I know how life ought to go. Do you know how it works out in terms of overconfidence? It means that I'm going to go to the right school, I'm going to get the right degree, I'm going to move to the right town, and everything in my life will work out like daisies and roses. And the problem happens when somebody else is making more than you who worked uh, the same as you and you get bitter about life because you know how life ought to go. And if you just work hard enough and you have enough self-determination, then you can make it happen. So that's the first reason why it's destructive. Planning gives the illusion of control. The second reason that James gives us this stern warning is this. Wealth gives us the appearance of security. Now, of course, we can't live without money. Earning money is good. Working is good. But normally what happens as we earn more, our cost of living goes up, and then we just simply compare ourselves to other people in our tax bracket, and we think we're doing pretty good. We're fairly generous. Now, you all live in D.C., which means you're world travelers. And so as you travel around the world, many times you are shocked by the living conditions and the standards around the world. Do you know when someone comes from another country here, they're equally shocked, but for the opposite reasons, at our standard of living here. In this passage, there are three standards of wealth. Grain, clothing, and gold and silver. And James says, do you not realize if you leave grain in a storehouse, it's going to rot? 
And don't you know, no matter how many clothes you buy, no matter how many uh, closets full of shoes that you have, eventually the moth will destroy them. And don't you realize that gold and silver, and James knew that those metals wouldn't corrode, but he was likely referring to coinage that would have had mixed alloys, that they would rust and corrode over time. Don't you know the second law of thermodynamics, James says, that over the course of time, things break down, they lose energy. If you leave your turkey on a table and try to eat it three weeks later, it doesn't taste the same and will probably make you sick. Things of this world break down over time. And James compares our hoarding of wealth like a lamb who is being fattened for the slaughter. It draws back an image in the Old Testament of like dining and eating this incredible feast, locking yourself in a home while all around your city is being destroyed. He says you are foolish. And just because you have a a full meal and a banquet at this time, you are not really secure. Riches deceive us into thinking that they are permanent and they cause us to act like we were going to live forever and they will never ever go away. They give us a sense of comfort in a broken world and they can lull us into sleep about how truly broken this world is. And James says none of these things are lasting. Now don't get me wrong. I want to live in a comfortable house. I want to eat good food. I want to have a measure of comfort. It's okay, but it's not lasting. It's an illusion. And greed is so deadly because we're so unaware of it in our lives. None of us really ever confess our greed to one another. We'll talk about so many things But greed is not at the top of our list when we think about the sins in our own lives. So the question that I think James would ask you in the second point is this. Are you aware of the appearance of security that wealth provides and the illusion of control that planning provides in your life? Have you gotten to a point yet in your life that you realize you cannot control the things that matter most in life. Like what? You want your, your child to turn out a certain way and you are powerless to make them do what you want them to do at a certain point in their life. Or how about when your spouse gets a terminal illness and you can't do anything to heal her Or what about the husband who is unfaithful and walks away from you and you are powerless to make them love you? Have you reached that point in your life where you realize that you do not have any power no matter how much you plan, no matter how much you strategize, no matter how many PhDs you get, you can't control the things that matter most in life. And when you do realize it, What do you do? You can usually go in one of two directions, and I hope you'll go in a third. But normally what we do is we'll go into despair. The world is just so cruel. Life's not fair. Why even try? 
and we go into despair. But all of you are accomplished, and you live in D.C., so you come to the other side, and most of you just get more determined. Well, I'll just get another degree. I'll strategize harder. I'll study longer. I'll work later in the day, and I can be determined to make things work out. Even if you can conquer some of those things in your life, I will challenge you with this. You might be able to cure one illness or overcome some challenge, but no one has ever fought death in one. No one has ever fought death and won. The ultimate picture of being powerless no matter how much you plan. So what do you do? I'm so glad you asked. That brings us to the good news. And there's a whisper here. There's a hint of the good news in this passage. And it's found in verse 6 when in, in chapter 5 when it says, You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The translation here is, you have murdered the righteous man, singular. You have murdered the righteous one, and he does not resist you. Who is he talking about? The solution to all of our sermons, Jesus. All throughout Acts, Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 calls Jesus the righteous one. And you see, he could have resisted, but he did not resist. Do you understand we murdered the righteous one by our sin? Do you understand, this is what James wants you to see, understand that Jesus, who dwelled in the holy of holies, who had all the riches of the entire universe and cosmos, who controlled every molecule in the entire world, he gave all of that up to make us his treasure. He gave up his riches. He became poor. He gave up his control so that he was murdered on a cross. Why did he do that? He did that because he loves us so much, because he treasures us almost more than anything else in the world. Jesus Christ came and lost control. He gave up wealth so that we might gain the riches of heaven. He became poor so that we might become wealthy. He gave up all his treasure in heaven to make you and I his treasure. And even though he did that, the natural tendency of the human heart is to still trust in the creation more than the creator, to worship things of the world than the one who owns the world. And you know what? Love of money, love of wealth means that it becomes a God in your life. And what do you do to a God in your life? You trust it. So you trust in your work. And you rest assured that if you work hard enough, you will be rewarded. And it is relentless and tiring pursuit. That's what the God of wealth offers you. The God of the Bible, Jesus, offers you this, that he is the one who will work. And we are the ones who will be rewarded. 
You see, we think that material possessions will provide more security than being in the hand of the sovereign God of the universe. And we all think that the job that we have and the title that we've been given means more to our righteousness than the blood of Jesus. And if you want that world, Jesus says you can have that world. But I want you to see me. And I want you to see how beautiful I am. And if you'll have me, I offer myself to you. In the gospel, everything you long for is already yours. Don't go chasing after cheap imitations. But come to the real thing is what Jesus says. And that brings us to our last point very briefly. When you see Jesus making you his treasure, it becomes easy to make him our ultimate treasure. In 5.3, the reference is made to last days. What does last days mean? It's referencing a time the way the biblical writers would speak about the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection and before his second coming. So that's period of time between his ascension and his second return. Hint, that's now. <laughs> so what James is drawing attention to is we need to be mindful that we are living according to God's clock. Don't you find it interesting that no longer are cemeteries put around churches? Now, I know some of it's just the price of land, but you know another reason? We don't like to think about death sometimes. And James reminds us that we need to remember that all things are coming to a consummation, that Jesus is coming back to judge the earth. And as Blaise Pascal said, we need to learn to define life backwards and live it forwards. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, if you have a proper understanding of the second coming of Christ, you'll have a proper attitude towards the world. You see, when Jesus becomes our treasure, then wealth and planning simply become our tools. And we will use our stuff and treasure Jesus instead of using Jesus and treasuring our stuff. When you recognize that you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, then your security will not be in the circumstances, but the God of circumstances. And your peace will not come from possessions, but by being possessed by the God of the universe. And your hope will not be in your control, but the one who rules and overrules every molecule in the entire universe for his glory and our good. And do you know what melts away? Anxiety and bitterness and pride and you're calmed before the Lord. So James and I rode out to uh, Houston on a plane. We didn't fly it. Uh, we were riding on this plane and our seats were across from one another in the aisle. Now, neither James nor I are that guy that sits next to you on the plane and goes over the four spiritual laws. But I can assure you that for this three-hour flight, James preached a sermon. And it was because we were reflecting back on this year at McLean Presbyterian and all the things that the Lord had done. And you know, James, you know, we're always going to talk about our own idols and our own struggles. And James, he's not a quiet talker on the plane. 
So whether they wanted it or not, at least half the plane got a three-hour sermon. I expected all of them coming off the plane to be like, thank you, pastor, for the sermon. Or like, you know, what must I do to be saved, you know, and like baptize all these people in Houston airport. But the thing that we were really reflecting on is that we pray all the time that God would rule and overrule. And he makes these promises that he's not going to give us more than we can handle. And we were thinking about church planting. And we have worked hard to try to plant a church for years and years. You thought it was going to be James church planting. And then you called him a senior pastor. Great. Thought I was going to be church planting. Two other pastors left. I'm sticking around whether you like it or not. (laughs) We keep attempting to church plant. But providentially God is hindering that. We are thankful that God provided new city dropped out of the air. And we planted a church this year without doing anything. And so if you're interested in being a part of this incredible work, come to lunch. But in the midst of working hard, we could become worried and anxious and impatient because things aren't working out the way that we thought they ought to. But you know what? The God of the universe loves us. He rules and he overrules so that when we understand that the God of the universe loves us that much, we have a calmness. You see, if you were as wise, if you were as loving, if you were as powerful as God, you would answer your own prayers the same way that God answers yours. And when you understand that, that settles you. And when you understand that all the wealth, all the blessings in your life are a gift from God, do you know what that makes you? It makes you radically generous because you realize that everything that you have was a gift and you didn't earn it. So you need to steward it according to the one who gave it to you. And you can be generous with his stuff because it's not yours. And then we will be able to cry out, like the famous missionary Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Treasure Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that it's easy for us to put ourselves in your place, to plan, to strategize, And to think that we have more control than we really do. And Father, we admit that we insulate ourselves through worldly comforts so that we don't have to think about eternity. But Father, help us to see that we don't have to fear, that we don't have to worry, because you lost everything in order to make us wealthy, in order to give us a certain future and a hope. Father, help us to live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.